Chapter 12 In the Flag Room In March 2009, six months before Hayes signed his contract with Citigroup, a letter postmarked Washington arrived at the bank's Canary Wharf skyscraper in London. The letter was from the CFTC, and it posed a series of rudimentary questions. How did LIBOR work? How did banks figure out the data they submitted every day? Who exactly came up with the estimates? Could someone please explain the whole process? It was a remarkable series of questions for an agency whose investigators had spent much of the past year looking into the benchmark. Somehow, the CFTC still lacked a basic understanding of how banks set LIBOR. Citigroup was inclined to be helpful. After all, having doled out $45 billion in taxpayer aid, the U.S. government controlled 36% of the company. And the CFTC, for years an afterthought among Washington's regulatory apparatus, seemed destined for more power with a Democrat, Barack Obama, now in the White House. The CFTC's request for information wound its way through Citigroup's Byzantine organization before finally landing on the desk of Andrew Thursfield, the very man who had repeatedly insisted that LIBOR was as robust as could be. The Brit had spent his entire career working in the bowels of Citigroup, which he joined as a trainee in 1988. His job at the moment was running the bank's treasury desk in London. His team, squished into a corner of a vast trading floor on the second floor of the Canary Wharf Tower, was responsible for figuring out how money should be most efficiently allocated and transmitted among the bank's appendages in more than 100 countries, arranging for one Citigroup unit to transfer money to another. In essence, it acted as a bank within the bank. Thursfield also continued to manage the bank's LIBOR submissions, and as Citigroup's representative on the FXMMC that oversaw the rate, he was well-situated to help the CFTC with its queries. In retrospect, the manipulation at the heart of the LIBOR scandal was hard to miss. But, at least to outsiders, it wasn't so obvious at the time. The organizations closest to LIBOR, namely the BBA and the banks, had done everything in their power to hide the rate's deep problems. The daily moves in LIBOR were not so massive as to suggest tampering. They also were not consistently in one direction. Some days traders yanked it higher, other days they shoved it lower. The definition of LIBOR, and the way that definition was interpreted, was fuzzy. Not to mention the fact that banks didn't have rules about how their employees should set the rate, and no regulator was responsible for overseeing it. And recognizing the bogus switch trades was nearly impossible to outsiders, given the tens of thousands of transactions taking place every day. Deliberately or not, Hayes and others had taken advantage of those circumstances, and, absent ironclad evidence of wrongdoing, they were a bit like athletes whose performance notably improves even as they age. Are their skills the result of harder work, greater luck, or something illicit? And unlike athletes, traders' feats didn't take place on a field and weren't televised. They were hidden deep inside vast financial institutions. Thursfield was supposed to help the CFTC explore those inner recesses. He crafted an 18-page PowerPoint slideshow, 
defining LIBOR, and detailing the legitimate sources of information banks looked to as they came up with their LIBOR estimates each day. One section walked the CFTC officials through a typical day for an interest rate trader, the type of person who not only was involved in the LIBOR setting process, but also tended to have lots to gain or lose based on the outcome. In another slide, Thursfield took a computer screenshot that showed where several brokerage firms, ICAP, Tullet Prebon, and Tradition, were estimating or suggesting LIBOR would land on a random day. He noted in the presentation that such broker run-throughs were a source of market color that Citigroup sometimes relied on to decide on its LIBOR submissions. That was an understatement. One of the bank's LIBOR submitters, Lawrence Porter, often called a buddy at ICAP and asked him where yen LIBOR was likely to end up. He then used that figure as the basis for Citigroup's submission. The 43-year-old Porter had been involved with LIBOR since the 1990s, and he was still in charge when he met Burak Cheltik, a graduate trainee cycling through various departments. Porter took Cheltik under his wing. By 2008, he had handed over many of his LIBOR-submitting duties, including the yen version, to his mentee. One of his first instructions was for Cheltik to get signed up for Colin Goodman's run-throughs. The inexperienced Celtic, whose name was pronounced Celtic, even though everyone in London insisted on pronouncing it like the Boston basketball team, promptly started copying the run-throughs verbatim, errors and all. To anyone paying attention, and not many people were, it was an unequivocal sign of LIBOR's malleability. There was another feature of the LIBOR submitting process that Thursfield didn't mention to the CFTC. Banks were taking into account their trading positions when deciding where to pin LIBOR. Thursfield knew this was happening. For example, in September 2007, he had multiple conversations with a Citigroup manager named Scott Berry, who asked Thursfield to push LIBOR lower. The emails made clear that the bank's trading positions were one of the factors they used to determine their data. Thursfield promised Barry that he'd pressure brokers accordingly. Footnote. Thursfield would later say he didn't realize that Barry wanted LIBOR moved to benefit the bank's trading positions. End footnote. Now, two years later, Thursfield didn't see a need to trouble the CFTC with such technicalities. Short and skinny with a long pointy nose, Gary Gensler grew up in a working-class neighborhood in Baltimore. His father, Sam, was the son of Eastern European immigrants and founded a company that supplied cigarette dispensers and pinball machines to Baltimore's plentiful bars. Sometimes, Gensler and his identical twin, Robert, accompanied their father on sales and maintenance calls. They also tagged along when Sam, a steadfast Democrat, drove up to Annapolis to lobby state legislators about regulations related to the vending machine industry. It was Gensler's first taste of politics, and he liked it. The Gensler twins were determined to escape the blue-collar world. They were both math whizzes and attended the University of Pennsylvania together. Gary was the coxswain on the crew team, a role that required him to get his weight down to a rail-thin 112 pounds, which he did quickly, 
a sign of the almost reckless intensity and commitment that would mark his career to come. After graduating, he joined Goldman Sachs at age 21 and shot up through the ranks. At 30, he became the firm's youngest ever partner. A Goldman partnership was one of the most coveted distinctions on all of Wall Street, something that people typically spent decades striving for and often failing to achieve, not to mention the ticket to vast riches. Gensler had managed it without seeming to break a sweat. His brother followed a similar path to wealth, becoming a portfolio manager at T. Rowe Price, the giant mutual fund company headquartered in Baltimore. Soon he emerged as a star stock picker, someone who seemed to have an innate knack for buying shares before they gained value and dumping them before they cratered. He became a frequent talking head on business news channels. Sometimes when Robert appeared on CNBC, his twins' colleagues would wonder what on earth Gary was doing on TV blabbing about the shares of some random company. After 18 years at Goldman, Gensler was set for life with a reported net worth of about $60 million. He left to pursue a career in public service, a proud if arguably self-serving tradition among partners at the Wall Street firm. Another Goldman executive, Robert Rubin, had been tapped by Bill Clinton to become the U.S. Treasury Secretary, and Gensler moved to Washington to work for him as an undersecretary. Rubin presided over an unprecedented period of economic growth, and, with the White House's support, the dismantling of much of the bank regulatory apparatus that had been erected to prevent a repeat of the Great Depression. Gensler was an enthusiastic advocate of loosening what the Clinton Democrats, along with much of the Republican Party, argued was an antiquated, counterproductive system of overseeing things like derivatives and the energy markets. Those who interfered with their anti-regulatory campaign, such as Brooksley Bourne, the CFTC chairman who thought her regulatory agency should actually do some regulating, were sidelined or forced out. When Republicans took over Washington in the 2000s, Gensler found ways to keep his public profile alive, writing a book about the danger of falling for the allure of star mutual fund managers. He and Robert appeared on public television to debate the topic. In his spare time, Gensler climbed mountains and ran several marathons, as well as a 50-miler when he turned 50. In 2008, Gensler took advantage of the connections he'd forged at Goldman and in Washington and acted as the Obama campaign's unofficial liaison to Wall Street. It wasn't exactly an awe-inspiring position. Once, he gathered the CEOs of several big banks in a private room at the Willard Hotel across the street from the Treasury Department and a stone's throw from the White House to explain to them why supporting Obama was in their best interests. Lloyd Blankfein, who as Goldman's CEO was the unofficial king of Wall Street, showed up a little early. As soon as Gensler arrived, Blankfein walked up to say hello and goodbye. I don't think I will be able to stick around, he said. Gensler, sensitive to his standing with powerful people, took it as a slight. Obama soon rewarded Gensler for his support, nominating him to become the chairman of the CFTC, the same role that Bourne had stepped down from a decade earlier after pressure from Treasury officials, including Gensler. 
By now, Rubin's breed of Wall Street-loving Democrats had fallen out of favor amid a financial crisis. Gensler's nomination encountered stiff resistance from liberal senators. At this moment in our history, we need an independent leader who will help create a new culture in the financial marketplace and move us away from the greed, recklessness, and illegal behavior which has caused so much harm to our economy, Senator Bernie Sanders said as he announced his intention to block Gensler's appointment. Gensler, 51 at the time, knew what he had to do, cleanse himself of his now-toxic centrist credentials. He launched an offensive to convince his doubters that, if confirmed, he would embrace a tough-on-Wall Street approach, transforming the sleepy CFTC into a force to be reckoned with. He wowed one critic at a big public interest group by conceding that he had erred in the past with his laissez-faire views, a rare acknowledgement of screwing up from a public official. The about-face worked. The Senate voted to confirm Gensler as CFTC chairman, and he started the job on May 26, 2009. Thomas Yule and his fellow graduate student, Ilanine Kondo, had spent the day, and now much of the night, in a cramped office they shared at the University of Minnesota, where they were both pursuing doctorates in industrial organization, a branch of economics. All day they had been sifting through financial data in between bantering about economics and current events. Now, the two night owls walked home to the house they shared in Dinkytown, across the Mississippi River from the economics department. Ewell loved walking over the 10th Avenue Bridge, inspired by the wide river and the wider sky. In the winter, when the temperature sometimes dipped to minus 40 degrees, Ewell would still trudge across, sometimes moving backward to shield his thin, boyish face from the bitter wind. On this May night, the dark brown river was barely visible, though Ewell could hear it churning below. Like Gensler, a Maryland native and math whiz, Yule had always wanted to be a professor. But now that he was on that career path, he was struggling mightily to choose a topic for his doctoral thesis, a subject to which he would devote the next couple of years, if not more, of his life researching. His initial idea had been to look at competition in the Texas electricity markets. His thesis advisor, an economist named Patrick Bajari, told him that sounded dull. How about pursuing something related to banking? The industry was in the throes of a nasty crisis. Surely there were sexy topics to explore. So Ewell, not knowing where to begin, embarked on a needle in a haystack search for a topic. Every federally regulated bank periodically has to fill out something known as a call report, jammed with heaps of granular data about all aspects of its balance sheet. The call reports were publicly available, but finding anything in them was next to impossible for a layperson. Yule found a way to download, in bulk, every big bank's data. He spent the next several months aimlessly wandering through the numbers. When he occasionally encountered something that sounded interesting, he bounced it off another grad student, Conan Snyder, a couple of years ahead of him. Snyder wasn't shy about telling Yule that his ideas were lame, which they generally were. Yule did, however, unearth some interesting nuggets. For example, 
he learned that some of the biggest American banks, such as Citigroup and J.P. Morgan Chase, were stuffed with trillions and trillions of dollars of derivatives linked to interest rates, particularly LIBOR. Yule socked that knowledge away and kept hunting. As Yule and Kondo walked across the bridge, their conversation turned to LIBOR. The apparent problems with the rate, the fact that banks seemed to be deliberately understating their borrowing costs, had been in the news, and one of Bajari's colleagues had pursued preliminary research into the area. Suddenly, in Yule's mind, something clicked. It was so simple. LIBOR was set by banks that, he knew from the call reports, were sitting on mountains of derivatives that hinged on LIBOR. Was it possible that what everyone had assumed was the reason for the skewing, banks' efforts to trick the public into thinking their funding costs were lower and the institutions were healthier than they really were, was only part of the story? The next day, Yule told Snyder about his eureka moment. Could this work as a thesis topic? For once, Snyder smiled. Now that is a good idea, he exclaimed. The two started brainstorming about statistical methods he could use to prove that banks were messing with LIBOR to benefit their portfolios of interest rate derivatives. The more they talked, the more excited they became. Snyder offered to work with Yule on the project. Yule said yes. Then they explained their idea to Bajari. He, too, was pumped. It meshed nicely with his area of expertise. Ways to prove whether firms were operating collusively. Now the question became how to go about proving their hypothesis. Snyder and Yule spent an afternoon toying around with a primitive game theory model. Then they looked at alternative data sources on banks' borrowing costs to gauge LIBOR's accuracy, similar to the methodology that Mullenkamp and Whitehouse had used in their journal piece a year earlier. Over the following weeks, they dug through research about how different prices for medical care altered consumers' behavior, creating a phenomenon known as bunching in which people clustered around certain price points. Drawing on that research, they devised several categories for LIBOR submissions, highest, lowest, and a few middle tiers. Yule spent some time working in the offices of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, which was equipped with a nearly magical tool, a Bloomberg computer terminal crammed with just about every bit of financial data imaginable. After he downloaded a couple of years' worth of LIBOR submissions for dozens of banks across a half-dozen currencies and many different time periods, Yule and Snyder laboriously entered the data into a spreadsheet and then divided the submissions into the high, low, and middle categories. If nothing weird was going on, they figured, the submissions should have been evenly spread, more or less, across all the categories. But when they plotted the data on a chart, the submissions appeared clustered around the fringes of the highest and lowest categories. Because of the way LIBOR was calculated, with the highest and lowest submissions thrown out, and the rest averaged, banks that wanted to move the rate would have had to aim for the highest or lowest possible levels without being knocked out of the average. When the two students looked at the chart, the bunching phenomenon jumped out at them. This, they realized, 
Wasn't the behavior of banks trying to mask their rising borrowing costs by submitting artificially low LIBOR data? It was the behavior of banks trying to push the benchmark in very specific directions. Holy shit, this is great, Bajari blurted when Yule and Snyder briefed him. He instructed them to write a paper that could be published quickly, hardly the norm in an academic field where peer-reviewed articles can languish for years. People are going to steal this idea, he warned. His students thought Bajari seemed to be thinking more like a scoop-hungry journalist than a perfectionist academic. About six months later, Quick in academia, after countless all-nighters and considerable hounding from the impatient Bajari, Yule and Snyder completed a draft of their article. It ran 30 pages, including several pages of charts attached at the end, and was titled, Does the LIBOR Reflect Banks' Borrowing Costs? They noted the consensus view, held by everyone from the journal to the CFTC, that LIBOR manipulation appeared to be motivated by lowballing. Their research, they wrote, points to a more fundamental source, namely that bank portfolio exposure to the LIBOR give them incentives to push the rate in a direction favorable to these positions. The technical language masked the importance of what they had found. They submitted the paper to a bunch of academic journals. An editor at the Journal of Finance the field's foremost publication, was among those who shot it down. This is ridiculous, the editor huffed. Even if it's true, who would care? Nobody would publish it. Gensler hit the CFTC like a hurricane. He was brilliant, and he knew it, accustomed to always being the smartest guy in the room. And he was blunt, sometimes brutally so. He could be intimidating, partly because of his demeanor. Anyone who interpreted his tendency to preside over meetings while slouched in a chair with his loafers off as a sign he was laid back was in for an unpleasant surprise, and partly because of the sheer weight of financial expertise he was carrying around in his brain. I don't think you know what you're doing, was a common Gensler refrain if he took issue with an employee's work. His no-holds-barred approach might work on a Goldman Sachs trading floor, but it was jarring inside a staid government agency staffed by not very well-paid civil servants. He sowed discord with some of his fellow commissioners, threatening to plant negative stories about them in the media if they didn't vote the way he wanted them to. Gensler also had a softer side. His wife, Francesca Danielli, an artist, had died of breast cancer in 2006 at age 52, and the widower was deeply devoted to his three daughters. He maintained his home in Baltimore and commuted to Washington every day, taking the 7 a.m. train there and the 7 p.m. one home. If his youngest daughter needed help with her homework, Gensler would pack his briefcase and catch an earlier train home. After the girls went to bed, he would pick up where he'd left off at the office. Colleagues routinely fielded his phone calls after 11 p.m. Many employees gradually warmed to Gensler, even if they detested his pit bull personality. Sure, he was tough, but his goal of trying to empower what had been a federal backwater was worthy. 
While many regulatory agencies had relied on narrow, conservative interpretations of their responsibilities in order to avoid wading into controversial territory, Gensler encouraged staff to search widely for new areas in which they could assert their authority. One day that spring, Stephen Obi briefed Gensler on the cases that the Enforcement Division was working on. Included in the rundown was the LIBOR investigation. Gensler liked what he heard. In an office park adjacent to San Francisco International Airport, two attorneys, Joseph Kachet and Nancy Nishimura, had been toiling on a lawsuit against some of the world's biggest banks. Brash, cocky, and hard of hearing, with his thinning white hair combed straight back, Kachet had been a Special Forces paratrooper after he graduated from college with an engineering degree in 1960. Then he became a lawyer, a flamboyant one. He dressed in gaudy suits. He once showed up in a London criminal court as a spectator and loudly critiqued the prosecutor's tactics, earning a stern rebuke from the white-wigged judge. His drink of choice was red wine, with several ice cubes sloshing around in the glass. His decaying marriage had become fodder for Bay Area tabloids, which regaled readers with rumors about Conchette's alleged proclivity for parading around his house naked in the presence of his teenage daughters. Conchette denied those allegations. But he was one of the country's best-known trial lawyers, a heavyweight Democratic donor who had taken cases to the Supreme Court. Conchette and Nishimura had spent years consumed with their case against banks. It claimed that U.S. towns and cities, including Los Angeles, had bought derivatives designed to protect them against big swings in interest rates, but that banks had engaged in anti-competitive practices to steer municipalities to derivatives that, no surprise, benefited those banks or their employees or friends. Cachette was enraged by the manner in which the banks had exploited unsophisticated customers, but it also made his mouth water. His firm pocketed a boatload of fees when lawsuits like this won in court, or, as more often happened, yielded giant settlements with deep-pocketed defendants eager to avoid the time-consuming and potentially embarrassing discovery process. In scouring clients' derivatives contracts as part of that lawsuit, Nishimura had repeatedly encountered LIBOR and was embedded in many of the derivatives. Now, in spring 2009, she started seeing LIBOR pop up in occasional stories in the financial media. The government was clearly sniffing around, and Nishimura had a pleasing thought. If LIBOR was manipulated, up or down, it almost certainly had an impact on her municipal clients. Some of them had derivatives that were supposed to pay out if LIBOR moved higher. Others had the opposite positions. Either way, this looked like easy money. This could be a huge case, she told Conchette, who didn't disagree. Nishimura started canvassing clients to see if they'd be interested in exploring a class-action lawsuit against the banks for manipulating LIBOR. It wasn't a hard sell. The deepening recession had caused tax revenues to dry up all over the country, and cities and public entities, like the University of California system, were eager to find ways to refill their coffers. Going after the banks 
seemed more than fair. Considering the disproportionate role they'd played in capsizing the American economy. The city of Houston, already a plaintiff in the derivatives case, was one of the first to sign up to join a LIBOR suit. Its mayor issued a press release declaring that it wasn't a question of whether the city was owed money by the banks for stiffing them on LIBOR, but how much the city was due. Louisiana's attorney general invited Nishimura. To make a presentation to state officials, she flew to New Orleans, where a lawyer picked her up at the airport and drove her the seventy miles to Baton Rouge. As they passed beat-up pickup trucks with gun racks and Confederate flag bumper stickers, the petite, well-dressed Asian American woman felt out of place. But by the time Nishimura's escort led her into Louisiana's thirty-four-story Art Deco Capitol building. She had managed to calm her nerves. She addressed a room full of angry and surprisingly smart finance officials from around the state. They told her that many struggling parishes had purchased derivatives that, for one reason or another, weren't delivering the anticipated financial rewards. Few of the officials had read the contract's details. Most didn't know what LIBOR was. A few assumed it was an official interest rate set by a British government agency. None of them had heard of the BBA. Once a year, many of the world's leading financial regulators gathered at a sprawling estate in the English countryside, about two hours by car outside London. Whiston House was built in the late 16th century on a property that spanned 6,000 acres of rolling hills and farmland. The majestic stone mansion was straight out of Downton Abbey. Whiston House now served as an elaborate conference center, and a British government agency charged with organizing meetings to enhance global unity was one of the main outfits that used the space. Among its events was the annual regulatory shindig. Gretchen Low was unhappy when she arrived. Back in Washington, her bosses McGonagall and Obi had been growing antsy. The LIBOR investigation appeared dormant. Part of the problem was the vague, open-ended questions the CFTC had sent out to banks and the BBA. Plus, the initial round of queries was voluntary. Was it really a surprise that few banks had bothered to respond? But an equally severe problem was that the FSA seemed to be taking its sweet time forwarding the Americans' requests for information. To London headquartered institutions, that was playing right into the hands of the industry, which was hoping the CFTC would find something better to do with its time. The FSA's apathetic attitude seemed to border on passive aggressive. At Whiston House, Low bumped into FSA enforcement honcho Margaret Cole. Low pulled her aside and, doing her best to remain diplomatic. Explained that the CFTC was treating the case as one of its highest priorities. She confided that the newly arrived Gensler was heaping pressure on his staff to find ways to overcome the agency's weak reputation. Low told Cole that she hoped the FSA would take the inquiries seriously. At the end of the chat, Low was left wondering whether Cole cared. Hayes. In addition to having neither tucked in his shirt nor shaved, was damp when he arrived at Citigroup's London headquarters 
on a Thursday in October 2009. The driving rain had rendered umbrellas useless, and he was running late. That's what a month of gardening leave will do to you, he had thought to himself when he realized that he had misremembered the start time of the day's first meeting. Citigroup wasn't his employer yet. He technically remained on UBS's payroll, and he wasn't supposed to be doing any work, certainly not interacting with his new company, until his compulsory three-month hiatus ran its course. The only reason he was even at Citigroup's offices that morning was that he happened to be in London. Back in Tokyo, Hayes' eyesight had been bothering him for a while. Now that he had a few months off, he checked himself into London's Moorfields Eye Hospital for laser surgery. He also was starting to scout for houses that he and Ty potentially could buy in his hometown of Winchester. When he'd mentioned to his soon-to-be Citigroup colleagues that he'd be in England, they suggested he stop by for a visit. So here, a bit soaked, he was. Hayes was escorted across the bank's sprawling second-floor trading room, buzzing with more than 500 traders and salesmen, each with as many as eight computer monitors, multiple phones, and squawk boxes. He felt at home. In a far corner, Hayes reached his destination, a small group of interest-rate traders and LIBOR submitters led by Andrew Thursfield. By now, it was nearly 10 a.m., half an hour after Hayes was scheduled to meet with Citigroup's fastidious LIBOR man. Oh yeah, sorry I'm late, Hayes said nonchalantly. I thought it started at 10 o'clock. Thursfield noticed that the disheveled trader was carrying a printout of his schedule that clearly listed the appointment time as 9.30. Thursfield didn't even understand why he was supposed to meet this guy. Hayes wasn't based in London. He wouldn't be working in Thursfield's section of the bank. He wasn't even employed by Citigroup yet. Thursfield introduced himself, explaining that, among other things, his desk's duties included submitting Citigroup's LIBOR data. Hayes didn't miss a beat. Great, you can help us out with LIBOR, he said. Thursfield looked taken aback but didn't say anything. Hayes thought he seemed a bit stuck up. The pair walked up and down rows of surrounding desks, with Thursfield introducing him to traders and Hayes making snide comments about the bank's antiquated phone systems. When they circled back to Thursfield's desk, Hayes launched into a monologue about his dominant position in the Japanese market, where he said he was responsible for 40% of all interest rates trades and his strong relationships with LIBOR submitters and traders at other banks. He talked about how he routinely asked them to move their submissions to suit his trading positions. He mentioned, a couple of times, the killing that UBS had made after Gollum alerted him to Deutsche Bank's plans to slash its LIBOR submission. Thursfield was stunned. Of course, he knew a lot of this was happening in the market. But especially lately, with U.S. regulators showing a keen interest in LIBOR, he figured all banks, not just Citigroup, were trying to steer clear of such machinations. He, for one, was trying to preside over a squeaky clean process. His team, in particular Lawrence Porter, canvassed other parts of the bank and various market participants to try to ascertain exactly what it was costing Citigroup to borrow money from other banks. 
Sometimes Porter came up with bad information, but at least he was diligent. And, in any case, Hayes's boastfulness offended Thursfield. It seemed impolitic to talk so openly about the dirty business of moving LIBOR to benefit your bank's trading positions. The next day, Thursfield and another executive, Steve Compton, spoke on the phone. Compton asked what he had thought of Hayes. Thursfield paused, considering how to word his response. Normally, he would try to adhere to British etiquette and cushion any caustic comments with understatement. Footnote. Years later, Thursfield would employ textbook restraint when he said of Hayes, It would be fair to say that I did not form a high opinion of this individual. End footnote. But he had found Hayes too objectionable to be polite. He was unimpressive and ultra-arrogant, Thursfield replied, describing how he openly talked about getting information from other traders. Compton asked if he got the impression that Hayes planned to continue such practices at Citigroup. Absolutely, Thursfield said, appalled. I mean, we just paid another $75,000 bill to the lawyer this week for the work they're doing on the CFTC investigation. So, that side of things, I mean, it obviously happens, and you know it's all subtleties about it. Based on his short visit with Hayes, Subtlety didn't seem to be his strong suit. I'm a bit nervous about anyone that kind of really touts the fact so openly that they are sort of 40% of the market, Compton agreed. I don't think it's ever a good thing to be 40% of the market. But there wasn't much either man could do about it. Chris Checkeray, who had hired Hayes, had some formidable allies inside the bank. He'd been recruited by a fellow Lehman Brothers veteran named Andrew Morton, who had wisely resigned from the Wall Street firm a week before it filed for bankruptcy protection. Now Morton was Citigroup's head of interest rate trading, a powerful role, multiple rungs above Thursfield. Morton, one of those who interviewed Hayes before Citigroup signed him, was a minor legend on Wall Street. As an academic in the 1980s, he had helped devise a model to value obscure interest rate derivatives. The system was widely adopted by bank traders and came to be known as the Heath-Jarrow-Morton Framework. At Citigroup, Morton's mandate was to revitalize what had been a key profit engine in its investment banking division. And the way to do that, at least as far as he was concerned, was to pump lots of money into hiring hotshot traders with hearty appetites for risk. There was no way Thursfield was about to pick a fight with Morton or one of his lieutenants to protest them hiring Hayes. But Thursfield had other weapons in his arsenal, namely, letting everyone know just how much he disliked the new trader. Later that day, in a phone call with a Citigroup trader in New York named Mark Smith, Thursfield derided Hayes as an absolute idiot. When Smith countered that he'd heard good things about him, Thursfield went on a tirade. He came across as a total wide boy, he said, using British slang that loosely translates as a sleazy wheeler dealer. He was basically saying he made half his money just on finding out what Deutsche were doing on their fixings because it was his best mate around there. And he was quite open about that. 
Sounds a bit risky, Smith said, given we're being investigated. I find it amazing that if he was being that blatant, whether it be by phone or by email or anything, that it's not going to get picked up, Thursfield ranted. Surely, he said, UBS will be supplying information to the CFTC. It didn't improve Thursfield's mood that a rumor was circulating that the bailed-out bank had agreed to pay Hayes an astronomical bonus. The figure Thursfield had heard was $6 million. He is probably telling everyone, Smith grumbled. While Hayes was rubbing people the wrong way at Citigroup, Obi was also in London. He was there for a regulatory conference being held in the luxurious Royal Garden Hotel in Kensington. On the conference's first day, he was a speaker on a panel with his former boss at the CFTC, Gregory Mosek. Bespectacled and balding, with a penetrating blue-eyed stare, Mosek had run the agency's enforcement division during the Bush administration, the period in which Obi pursued some of his career-defining energy cases. The Louisiana native, a passionate duck hunter, was now in private practice in Washington, tasked with helping clients defuse CFTC investigations. One of his marquee clients was Barclays. That evening, Mosak and Obi caught up over drinks. They met in a private lounge at the Grosvenor House Hotel, across the street from Hyde Park and a short walk from the conference venue. Mosek, exhausted, stretched out on an overstuffed red sofa. He had a surprising message. Barclays wanted to meet with Obi as soon as possible. Obi couldn't help feeling suspicious. After all, most banks had been doing everything possible to avoid assisting the CFTC. Why did Barclays suddenly perceive it as beneficial to change tack? Mosak explained that the bank had stumbled upon some important new LIBOR evidence. A day or two later, Obi showed up at the FSA's headquarters, considered neutral ground, to meet with Mosak and the Barclays officials. In a large, glass-walled room, Mosak explained that the bank had been sifting through more than 22 million email records, audio files, and other documents in the process of racking up tens of millions of dollars of legal and other fees, a number that, presumably to Mosek's delight, was growing by the day. Mosek fiddled with a computer, and then the scratchy sound of two men with thick British accents played over the room's speaker system. The voices, Mosek explained, belonged to a Barclays trader and his manager. The recording was from the previous fall, at the peak of the financial crisis. The two men were debating whether to move LIBOR lower to avoid unwanted public scrutiny. The trader, who was in charge of the bank's LIBOR submissions, resisted, fearing such a move would breach BBA rules. His manager said they didn't have a choice. The order to reduce LIBOR was coming straight from executives at the bank, who, in turn, had received the instructions from someone senior at the Bank of England. This was a bombshell. Not only were bankers on tape talking about gaming their LIBOR data, but they were doing so at the behest of a central banker. As the recordings played, Obi's adrenaline surged. Then Mosek showed some follow-up emails 
that the unhappy LIBOR submitter had sent to his manager and the bank's compliance department, in which he reiterated how uncomfortable he was with the orders he was receiving. Barclays promised to provide all the material in duplicate to any regulator who wanted it. Finally, Obi thought, a breakthrough. That evening, he and Cole met for a previously scheduled dinner at a riverside restaurant with views of Tower Bridge and the city's distinctly shaped skyscrapers, their lights twinkling in the damp night. The two regulators discussed the stunning materials Barclays had just disclosed. Cole's skepticism about the LIBOR investigation seemed to have faded. Obi managed to suppress a glib smile. Back in Washington, Obi received a package containing a compact disc with the audio files and other materials that Mossack had disclosed in London. By now, bits of evidence had been trickling in for a few months from banks that seemed to be hoping that they could get the CFTC off their backs by providing convoluted spreadsheets and copies of mostly innocuous emails and internal chat sessions. Occasionally, the team stumbled across something shiny, such as a trader making a potentially incriminating remark. Then Lowe and her teammates would start searching for that trader's name in other places. Most of the time, though, they found nothing. The Barclays package was different. Toting the CD, Obi raced up to Gensler's suite, two floors above the enforcement staff's seventh-floor warren. I've got something you need to see, he told Gensler. The agency chief didn't use a computer, so they walked out to his assistant's desk. Obi ducked behind the desk, slid the CD into the computer, then double-clicked one of the audio files. The scratchy sound of cockney-accented bankers filled the windowless foyer. At first, Gensler didn't say anything, processing what he had just heard. Then he asked, If a central bank official is directing this, is it illegal? That would be a creative defense, Obi replied. He was surprised by Gensler's muted reaction. He didn't really know what he'd expected. It's not as if the no-nonsense multimillionaire was going to start jumping up and down in excitement. But Gensler soon became more enthusiastic. At the next meeting of the agency's five commissioners, Obi played a few of the Barclays recordings, not just the one with the Bank of England reference, but also other snippets of banter, cursing, and bluster. As he did so, Gensler kept interrupting. Wait, listen to this part, he blurted before especially juicy bits. The recordings had their intended effect. When Obi finished, the room was silent except for the soft hum of a ventilation system and the sound of one commissioner chuckling in disbelief. Hayes whiled away the remainder of his gardening leave in Tokyo. He caught up on British TV programs and made lots of sausages. He slept in. He paid frequent visits to a local bowling alley where he and Nigel Delmar tried to improve their mediocre games. He celebrated his 30th birthday in October at a party tied through at a fancy Mediterranean restaurant called Cicada. Chekere and his wife came. Brian McCappen, eager to impress his new hire, made an appearance. 
Hayes immersed himself in planning his wedding, scheduled for September 2010. And he contacted Reed with an unusual request. He planned to be in London for the holidays and was looking for a nice place to take Ty and a group of ten friends out to dinner on New Year's Eve. The catch, he didn't want to pay. He bluntly asked Reed if ICAP would foot the bill. This took chutzpah. Following Hayes' departure, UBS had frozen its fixed-fee arrangement with the brokerage. And since he wouldn't be trading for the next few months, ICAP wasn't making money off him. But Hayes told Reed that the whole tab wouldn't be much more than 1,000 pounds. Reed pulled some strings and made it happen. The soon-to-be millionaire would get his free meal. Ever since working on the energy cases earlier in the decade, Obi had been dying to land another investigation that would allow him to harness the fearsome power of the Justice Department and its investigative arm, the FBI. Now he called a longtime acquaintance, Robertson Park, in the Justice Department division that pursued fraud cases. Park, tall and gregarious, with a thick gray beard, was at his desk on the third floor of the Bond building, a 108-year-old relic a block away from the White House, when his phone rang. Obi told him he had something special for him to hear. Park looked out his window at a construction site, surely the lustrous new home of an expensive law firm or lobbying shop. Over the phone, he heard typing and then muffled static and then the voices of the Barclays traders. Oh my God, Park said when the recording ended. He didn't know much about the LIBOR investigation, but he could tell this was extraordinary. Obi filled him in on the backstory, noting the parallels to the energy cases they had worked on together. Park didn't require much persuading. By now, more than a year after the onset of the worst crisis since the Great Depression, the public was yearning for someone, anyone, to be held accountable. No executives on Wall Street, or any other major financial center, for that matter, had faced jail time for their roles torpedoing the world's economies. In fact, some of the dethroned bank CEOs had walked away from their crippled institutions with immense personal fortunes. To anyone who had lost his home or been chased down by bill collectors, it was offensive, and public outrage was increasingly aimed at government authorities who didn't seem to be doing much to identify, much less prosecute, the crisis's villains. Part of the problem was Justice's aversion to indicting big companies. In 2002, the department had filed criminal obstruction of justice charges against Arthur Anderson, which had been Enron's auditor and had destroyed thousands of documents as the Houston Energy Company collapsed in a massive accounting fraud. The case against Anderson was meant to showcase the Bush administration's seriousness in its crackdown against corporate crime. But the presumption at the time was that the giant accounting firm would strike a deal to avoid the case actually ending up in court. Instead, the 90-year-old firm decided to roll the dice by going to trial. After a six-week trial and ten days of deliberations, the jury delivered its verdict. Guilty. Anderson, 
already severely wounded by the loss of important clients and employees, now unraveled entirely. More than 20,000 employees lost their jobs. Footnotes The U.S. Supreme Court overturned the conviction in 2005. End footnote. The destruction of a major company caused prosecutors to become painfully conscious about the possible consequences of charging a firm whose business hinged on public confidence. The Bush administration quickly changed tack to focus on rehabilitating the cultures of wayward companies rather than punishing them for wrongdoing. The banking industry deftly exploited this new stance, repeatedly pointing out that tens of thousands of jobs were on the line. The scare tactics were effective. With a few small exceptions, neither banks nor their executives got charged. In reaching every charging decision, we must take into account the effect of an indictment on innocent employees and shareholders. Lanny Brewer, the assistant U.S. Attorney General, would tell a gathering of New York lawyers. Obama's Attorney General, Eric Holder, later echoed that sentiment, prompting congressional critics to print Monopoly-style cards bearing the image of a winged, rich Uncle Pennybags escaping from a cage, along with the message, Your bank has been deemed too big to jail by the U.S. Department of Justice. By 2010, Newspaper opinion pages were beginning to brim with unfavorable comparisons to the reckoning that took place after the Depression, when a Senate panel named and shamed the industry's leaders. Even after the much smaller savings and loan crisis of the 1980s, more than 800 bank officials had ended up behind bars. The harsh comparisons weren't entirely fair. Just because Wall Street fat cats were despised, didn't mean they had committed any crimes. In fact, the nation's banking laws had been sufficiently watered down during decades of deregulatory zeal that much of what the bankers had done was perfectly legal. And building criminal cases was difficult. Many senior bankers had used layers of managers to insulate themselves from the potentially incriminating process of sending emails or having recorded phone calls about sensitive topics. The one thing worse than not going after any banks, some prosecutors believed, was going after a big bank and losing. Fair or not, the public attacks resonated in the upper echelons of the Obama administration. Inside the bond building, they stung the longtime prosecutors who wanted nothing more than to build a big case that would generate banner headlines and quench the public's thirst for justice. Until now, Park hadn't ever paid attention to LIBOR. Now he started spotting references to it everywhere, in the business section of newspapers, in online advertisements, even in personal loan documents. It was one of those things that could make you feel the fool. Here was this number that was connected to so much and yet it had remained hidden in plain sight. Park went to his boss, Dennis McInerney, who had been hired earlier that year by Brewer to run Justice's Fraud Division. The white-haired McInerney had been a longtime prosecutor in New York and in the federal Whitewater investigation against the Clintons. As a defense lawyer, 
He'd represented Arthur Anderson in its obstruction of justice case. One of the reasons Brewer had hired him was to pursue more financial crime cases. Dennis, this is important, Park told him, before explaining what he'd heard from Obi. The two men summoned a team of fraud investigators from their unit and invited the CFTC over to the bond building to strategize. The gathering was held in a dilapidated and claustrophobic conference room nicknamed the Flag Room. It was ringed with banners from different branches of the U.S. military and the seals from the government investigative agencies, such as the CFTC, that Justice tended to partner with. Low ceiling panels had been removed in a few places to allow flagpoles to poke through. An ancient TV-VCR combo was mounted on the wall. The chairs surrounding the conference table were in various states of disrepair and uncomfortable to sit in. None of that mattered when Obi, once again, played the Barclays recordings. Their significance was clear to everyone in the hushed room. This was the whale they'd been hunting for, a winnable case against the big, rich banks. Before officially joining Citigroup, Hayes paid a couple clandestine visits to the bank's Tokyo offices in the Sheen Marunouchi building, a newly constructed skyscraper that housed hundreds of shops and gourmet restaurants, to check out its technology and how traders' desks were set up. He asked for several modifications to his eighth-floor workspace and to the computers that he'd be running. The bigger priority, though, was getting Citigroup to join the group of banks that helped set Tybor. Aside from the yen version of LIBOR, this was the most popular instrument for Japanese interest rate derivatives to be linked to. The Tybor panel consisted of 17 banks, and joining the group would provide Hayes and his new colleagues with a clearer understanding of the benchmark's movements. And, more important, it would enable Citigroup to influence those movements. After talking to Hayes, Chekere emailed several colleagues, including Andrew Morton, to ask about the process for getting Citigroup on the panel. For obvious reasons, this is important to the bank and to trading, he wrote. Morton and other executives authorized Chekere to apply to join. They wouldn't learn for a couple of months whether the Japanese Bankers Association, which administered the benchmark, approved the application. On December 3rd, Hayes showed up for his first day of work. That morning, Citigroup wired 1,967,250 pounds, $3.2 million, into his personal bank account. As word spread of the slam-dunk Barclays evidence, more regulators jumped on the bandwagon, including the FSA, which overcame nearly two years of skepticism and launched its own investigation in the spring of 2010. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission also asked banks to hand over reams of data and internal documents. UBS had somewhat successfully stiff-armed the CFTC, and it tried to deflect the SEC to British and Swiss regulators. But the SEC investigators had less patience than Gensler's crew. And, after meeting a bunch of UBS employees, they bluntly accused the bankers of being obstructive. Footnote. 
Pete the Greek went straight to the BBA and told Ewan about the meeting. Pete's theory, which the credulous Ewan apparently bought, was that the SEC wanted to undermine LIBOR's legitimacy so that it could create its own competing interest rate benchmark. End footnote. In the meantime, UBS assured the SEC that nothing seemed to be wrong with LIBOR. That spring, the CFTC demanded that UBS hire an outside law firm to accelerate its slow-moving internal review. The scope of the agency's investigation remained limited. It was only looking at potential issues with the U.S. dollar version of LIBOR in 2007 and 2008. Yet UBS, even after grudgingly hiring the law firm of Allen and Overy, continued to drag its feet. A month or two later, an increasingly frustrated Obi was in London and decided to pay a surprise visit to Switzerland. FINMA, as the Swiss regulator was known, had repeatedly cited local bank secrecy laws as a reason that, alas, UBS wouldn't be able to hand over extensive documents or otherwise cooperate much with the Americans. The CFTC wouldn't pay for a direct plane ticket to Bern, where FINMA was based. So Obi flew to Munich, where he had a 13-hour layover before his short connecting flight. By the time he arrived a day later, he was exhausted and angry. He read his FINMA counterparts the Riot Act. The FINMA officials, speaking with thick Swiss-German accents, assured Obi that they would try to speed things up. Dealing with Citigroup proved easier. In March 2010, the SEC and CFTC sent a round of subpoenas to the bank and some employees. Peng, who by then had left for a job at Credit Suisse, also was asked to speak to the investigators. He spent a whole day at the SEC's New York offices explaining how LIBOR worked and how he had stumbled onto the benchmark's problems nearly two years earlier. What should we be looking for? An agent asked him, suggesting, to Peng's dismay, that the regulators remained clueless. Another subpoena landed on Thursfield's desk in London, nearly a year after he delivered his slide presentation, and Citigroup's lawyers told the government they would do anything they could to help. Hayes, by then, had been working at the bank, albeit half a world away, for a few months. And then there was the BBA. On a Friday morning, early in the summer of 2010, a half-dozen men in suits and with American accents showed up at the group's headquarters. They were from the CFTC and the SEC, joined by a lone Brit from the FSA. Knight had taken the day off, not an uncommon occurrence for her on a summer Friday. Is John Ewan here? One visitor asked. Ewan stood up, looking frightened. The men ushered him into a meeting room where they remained for more than five hours. On their way out late that afternoon, the investigators unplugged two of the BBA's computers and lugged them to a car waiting outside.